Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from an overcast, wintry day here in south-central British Columbia. In today's program, we begin to conclude our coverage on the COVID-19 scandemic. In this episode, we will examine the medical malfeasance and apparent corruption present in the global and federal health agencies and learn about life-saving treatments and how many lives were needlessly lost. Joining us for this episode is Dr. Paul Merrick, MD. Dr. Merrick has special knowledge and training in a diverse set of medical fields with specific training in internal medicine, critical care, neurocritical care, pharmacology, anesthesia, nutrition, and tropical medicine and hygiene. Dr. Merrick was formerly a tenured professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medicine School in Norfolk, Virginia. Presently, Dr. Merrick serves as co-chief medical officer for the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. Dr. Merrick is the second most published critical care physician in history and has already co-authored 10 papers on many therapeutic aspects of COVID-19. He has written over 500 peer-reviewed articles, 80 book chapters, and authored four critical care books. He has been cited over 43,000 times in peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Merrick has also delivered over 350 lectures at international conferences and visiting professorships and has been the recipient of numerous teaching awards, including the National Teacher of the Year Award by the American College of Physicians in 2017. Dr. Merrick, it is a real honor to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. Well, thanks thanks for that very lengthy introduction, and it's good to be able to speak the truth with you today. Fantastic, sir. And, and first off, I must commend you on your bravery and for your selfless service towards your fellow man, faithfully and dutifully fulfilling your Hippocratic Oath. Uh, you will be remembered as one of the heroes of this troubling chapter in human history. Yeah, thank you. You know what? I mean, those, those of us who you know, practice medicine and see the devastation of this disease, you know, we have a we have an obligation you know this is our obligation you know i took the undertook the hippocratic oath and my duty is to serve patients and that's what i've been trying to do um you know until obviously i was banned from doing that yes but you know what you know what this will continue because um the truth will have to come out eventually and the, the tragedy the tragedy as you say is you know, this is a treatable disease. Um, it was treatable from the beginning. Um, for various reasons, they, whoever they are, did not want us to treat this disease. They were hell-bent on vaccinating people. And, you know, in the U.S., I don't know, we're sitting at 900,000 deaths. And that's probably an underestimate. And if we had treated them early, because this is a treatable disease, you know, we could have saved, oh my goodness, hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, it, it's, 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 it's a tragedy. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but before we get into the meat of this discussion, perhaps you could share with us some details as to who the young Paul Merrick was at the time that he entered uh, the University of Witwatersand uh, and what motivated that young person to pursue the field of medicine. Yeah, so you know what, it's a good question. People ask me, and you know what? Um, it was just like I suppose my destiny. I just—it's what I—I I just did because that's what I was meant to do, and there was really no other choice in terms of a career that I was ever going to follow. And I, I don't know why exactly. I suppose 
maybe my grandfather, he was a physician. He was a wonderful man. He was a great thinker. So, you know, maybe I just followed in his footsteps. It's difficult to know. And, you know, I think um, I'm very grateful, actually, because um, although South Africa has a very checkered past history, you know, my, my training, I was trained to be a thinking doctor, a dedicated doctor, and that was kind of grained into us. You know, the patient comes first. You know, I remember my first day as an intern, you know, the chief of the division said, you know what, don't forget, you're here for the patients and patients come first. And it's such an important mantra that is lost in American medicine because I think you know, the graduates these days just, they don't think, they have no commitment, and, uh, you know, patient care is a secondary thing. So, you know, I do owe a lot to my South African training, and I think a lot of my career has been, you know, modeled and formed by, you know, my outstanding teachers. You know, I have to you know, these were wonderful people, completely dedicated to medicine and helping humanity. And, you know, that's where I think, you know, my genes come from. Uh, almost, almost a very different paradigm than what we're experiencing today then. So, yes, you know, so obviously I was, you know, involved in medical school teaching and resident teaching until you know, I was forced to resign. And, you know, my biggest complaint was that these doctors don't think. They're not taught how to think. They don't have the ability to think. Many of them are illiterate. They cannot read or write. And that's a terrible thing to say. And basically, they spoon-fed. And they, they really, you know, I was taught, you know, my professor would say, what do you think? You know, what do you think? What, what do you think about this? And they can't do that. They just regurgitate stuff and do not have independent thinking. Uh, it's a true tragedy. And their diagnostic skills are just non-existent. You know, there's a joke uh, at, at, at our medical school, you know, patients before they're seen by the doctor go through the diagnostic donut. The diagnostic donut is the CAT scanner. So before they even ask you a question, you know, you, you have a CAT scan. Um, you know, you may have come in because of pain in your leg, but you still get a body scan. So, you know, I'm, I'm fearful of the future of medicine because these are the practitioners that are going to be treating us and leading us the medical system. And we have, we have a big issue. Apart from all the COVID issues, we have a medical training issue. And you, you look at the, you know, the, the authoritarian organizations that govern medical residency training and student training. These are bureaucratic organizations run by bureaucrats who know nothing about medicine. So, you know, there's the dictum, those who can do, those who can teach those who can neither teach nor do, you know, join some kind of a medical board and tell others what to do. Mm. 
Yes, yes. Well, that's that's an interesting insight. And, and of course, it does seem uh, with this COVID era, certainly here in Canada, that um, uh, physicians, family doctors have been relegated to Zoom or, or, or Skype uh, home home calls uh, where they're probably sitting in their boxer shorts. And uh, if they can get a patient in and out of that Zoom meeting every five to seven minutes, uh, they, you know, they hit uh, the charge button to the, the government funding and, uh, you know, they're earning their $38 or whatever it is a, a patient. Um, and there's also, I think, a move towards standardized care, almost, um, you know, phone-in service with an algorithm that uh, spits out a prescription based on uh, whatever you're reporting to the, uh, to the machine. Yeah. So, you know, I can tell you about hospital medicine for COVID in the U.S., and it is exactly as you say, is that there is an NIH guideline which is considered the law in this country, maybe the same in Canada. It's the law. It's a mandate. So basically, if you come to a hospital with COVID in this country, regardless of your comorbidities, regardless of your severity of illness, regardless of your clinical presentation, regardless of your age, you get treated with remdesivir and six milligrams of dexamethasone. That is it. It's the law. And what I discovered is that if you should challenge the law or question the law, you consider as someone who's promoting medical misinformation and you need to be eliminated. So, you know, if we just look at remdesivir, so it's scandalous. So, you know, this drug was toxic for Ebola, and yet they decided to try it on COVID. They actually, the the study was failing. So halfway through their study, they changed the endpoint, the goalposts of the study, which in itself is considered scientific misconduct. And they were able to come up with some bogus endpoint um, and they manipulated the data. And based on this one fraudulent study, the FDA approved this this um, medication. And we should note that on the um, NIH therapeutics panel for COVID-19, there are like 25 members. 15 of them are actually paid by Gilead, paid the manufacturer of remdesivir. So, you know, talk about a conflict of interest. And so what we know now is if you actually look at the, there have been four independent studies looking at remdesivir. What it does is increases your risk of death by 3%. So this is a medication which is the standard of care. Almost every single patient gets this medication, which actually increases your risk of death. And if you look at the toxicity, it increases your risk of kidney failure sixfold. So, you know, I mentioned this at Senator Johnson's hearing. And, of course, the, um, you know, the media and the uh, propagandists, you know, called, called me lying and providing misinformation and disinformation. But this is just the truth. And what is most outrageous is the Wall Street Journal reported two days ago that that single drug which consumed the most amount of money, was most money was spent on acquiring that drug in the U.S. was, you wouldn't guess, remdesivir. 
something like $500 billion. So people have spent, I mean, this country has spent $500 billion distributing a toxic drug. And if you think that's bad enough, <laughs> the federal government actually gives hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if a Medicare patient is prescribed remdesivir. So they're incentivizing hospitals to prescribe a toxic drug. And when I say this, of course, people reprimand me again for promoting misinformation. But you know what? This is the truth. Go look for yourself. So it's an outrage. And, you know, as a clinician, we know that you have to individualize treatment. You know, I'm an intensivist. I work in ICU. You can't treat every single patient the same. It would be an absurdity. I mean, you wouldn't need doctors then. You could just have a computer. And treatment needs to be individualized based on their clinical presentation. And so, you know, so my story is, you know, we had developed a protocol for in-hospital treatment of COVID, which was based on science, you know, science, which is, you know, the, the, the pursuit of the ultimate truth. And we know that this protocol saved lives without question, and it was based on science. So what happened in October last year is my hospital banned me they banned me from using these medications. I mean, it's truly astonishing. So the hospital, the federal agencies are now telling doctors how to practice medicine. They're interfering with doctors' ability to be doctors and practice medicine. Um, and that's what happens in the U.S. But, I mean, I've, you know, I get calls from multiple people from all the time, and it's truly astonishing. <laughs> If you admit it to hospital, you get the NIH recipe, and that's it. They will not deviate from this. And it's become a death trap. People get caught in this hospital death trap and die. And and so I, let's just back the conversation up slightly. Um, prior to that April 20 approval of remdesivir, I understand that there was a trial uh, using remdesivir uh, for the treatment of Ebola, and the the data safety committee of that study halted the study because they were find, they found that remdesivir was simply too toxic to treat Ebola. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, and that actually was reported in December of 2019. So in December of 2019, the world knew that remdesivir was toxic, and they say in the article that the data safety monitoring board terminated the remdesivir arm because of increased toxicity and death in those people who got remdesivir. So again, it appears that, you know, it was a toxic drug for Ebola, but somehow if you give it to people with COVID, it magically becomes a wonderful therapeutic agent. Yeah, I mean, that's simply ludicrous. And anybody who who understands that 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 study was terminated for something which is a, a far more dangerous and hazardous to human health than COVID, uh, being Ebola, if it's not suitable for that disease, why on earth would it be suitable for uh, something much much milder? Absolutely, um, and you know what? When when uh, you know, I think this is an outrage. 
but you know, it seems like I'm the, the very few people that are actually going out on a limb, you know, calling this out. But it, it's an outrage. I mean, so you know, there are effective. You know, people don't realize that COVID is a treatable disease. It's a treatable disease, and there are multiple drugs that are effective against COVID. It's just the way it is. So there's actually a website called C19 Early Treatment, and obviously I have nothing to do with this website. And if you go there, you'll see there. there's a list of maybe 20 different therapeutic agents that have proven efficacy against COVID, you know, but they don't want you to know about this. They just don't want you to know it because it goes against their narrative. And if it goes against their narrative of safe and effective, safe and effective, and then get your remdesivir, then you're promoting misinformation. Yes, yes. Now, d during your recent testimony there at Senator Ron Johnson's uh, COVID-19 a second opinion, uh, you relate a heart-wrenching story regarding your experience at uh, Norfolk General Hospital after you were banned from using your life-saving protocol. Could you share some of those details about that experience and, and, and give us some background as to how that all came to be? Yeah, so, you know, I did kind of mention it. So, you know, how this all started, I mean, is that um, this is never my life's goal is, you know, in March and April of 220, when we saw COVID coming, um, the treatment at that time, you know, as espoused by the NIH and WHO and the CDC was supportive care. Supportive care means no care. And it just seemed ludicrous to me that you had a disease which was killing people and you didn't treat them. I mean, that just goes against the fabric of, of medicine. So what I did at that time is I thought, well, this is absurd. Uh, we kind of understood the pathophysiology of the disease. So we put together a treatment algorithm based on what we knew then. And then I got together with some of my colleagues who, you know, very well-established, well-published clinicians. And, you know, we formed the FLCCC. Um, there was a group of five, you know, really expert clinicians, um, including, you know, Dr. Umberto Maduri, who's probably the world expert on corticosteroids and lung disease. And we put together a treatment algorithm. Uh, we actually were recommending corticosteroids at that time because we, we treated these people, we understood the disease, and we were actually ridiculed for using steroids. Um, and then lo and behold, six months later, you know, the recovery study was published showing the life-saving uh, benefit of corticosteroids. So, you know, we've, in addition to that, we recommended anticoagulation with heparin because this disease causes clotting. We recommended vitamin C because this it's a profoundly inflammatory oxidizing disease. And, you know, we, we've been... So we've made recommendations which have subsequently been proven to be accurate, and yet we've been marginalized. So um, we knew this was a treatable disease in March and April. Um, we try to, and probably what I should emphasize is that early treatment is absolutely critical to people who have COVID. So at the time, and the NIH still perpetuates this um, profound mischief is that if you get COVID, they say you go home, you take fluid or whatever, 
and you stay at home, there's no treatment, and then if you can't breathe and you go blue to go to hospital where you get remdesivir. And that, that is just criminal because this is a treatable disease. And it's really important. Early treatment is important for multiple reasons. Firstly, it prevents progression of disease. So patients don't go to hospital. They don't fill up hospitals and they don't die. And secondly, it prevents transmission of this disease. So early treatment is critical. And as I said, there are multiple drugs which you can use to treat this disease, but they don't want you to know about it. Anyway, so, you know, we, as an intensivist, I had used our protocol called the MASS Plus protocol. And, you know, I have data suggesting that it has the mortality, at least, of COVID. So, you know, as we said, the hospital banned me from using this this drug combination, presumably because I was going against the narrative and the party line and whether they were pressurized, I don't know. So basically, you know, what was I to do? So I actually thought, well, let me see what I could do. I spoke to a lawyer and he said, well, you know, what can you do? Go and see what happens. So, you know, the week after this happened, I went back to the ICU um, I had seven patients who had COVID in the ICU, including a 31-year-old woman. And basically, I was helpless because there was nothing I could do to treat them. I was prevented from doing what I had been doing for 35 years and treating my patients to my best of my ability. So I had to stand by and watch as all of these seven people died. All seven of them died. Now, it was obviously, you know, it was truly heart-wrenching. Now, whether I could have saved all of them, I don't know. But you know what? At least I should have been able to do what I, what doctors do, is they do the best they can for their patients to try and save their life. This is a life and death situation. And you pull out all the stops and you do whatever you can for your patient. You know, if they were your loved one, that's what you would want. And I was prevented from doing that. Um, so, you know, it was an untenable situation I was put in. And so, I'd imagine, you know, I'd imagine, sorry, sorry, go ahead. So, you know, I had no option. My option was to quit or to try and sue them. Um, I sued them while well, I tried to, but didn't realize what I was up against, you know, going against the hospital is going against, you know, like going against Mount Everest, you just can't get through. So I didn't win the injunction. So uh, the hospital then pulled another trick. I mean, if you think that was evil, they then did this, this other trick, which I actually never knew about. It's called sham peer review. So they do this when they want to get rid of doctors they don't like. This is a, so. Uh, this is a playbook. So what they did is they accused me of a whole host of of wicked things that they accused me of doing, which were completely fabricated, completely false, completely made up. I mean, they were completely ridiculous. I mean, including charges that I had forced nurses to give patients medications to which they were allergic. Now, I mean, that is such an absurd accusation that that could never possibly happen. But that's what I was accused of. 
And then because of all these terrible things I did or so-called did, which were completely fabricated, and they couldn't provide any evidence to support any of these outlandish claims, not one piece of evidence. And then what they then did is that said that I posed such a serious and overriding threat to the safety and well-being of the patients in the hospital that they were immediately terminating my hospital privileges. So basically, they were prohibiting me working. Mm. So, I mean, it's truly outrageous. I mean, the depths of evilness that they could go to. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, obviously a low point in your in your medical career, and like you say, I mean you're you in those situations where you have these patients that are in critical condition, all stops need to be pulled out to in attempt to save their lives or to improve their condition, and being prevented in doing so uh, is a tragedy, especially when we're talking about uh, the use of low cost, repurposed, off label, FDA approved drugs. Uh, you know, you're not administering experimental products which have no track record. Yeah, so you're absolutely correct. And so the paradox is that, you know, the FDA, if you go to the website, has basically said that physicians can use FDA-approved off-label drugs at their own clinical discretion, and they encourage things to do this. So there's this double standard. You can use off-label drugs to treat cardiac disease, which happens every day. So if you have a condition called atrial fibrillation, which is enormously common, you're going to use a drug called aspirin. I don't know if you've heard of aspirin. Very and you're rare. going to use yeah, a very drug rare substance, yeah. <laughs> you're going to use a drug called amiodarone. It's kind of standard of care. These drugs are being used off-label. Off-label. And it's perfectly acceptable to treat using these off-label drugs. But if you would dare to have the audacity to use an off-label drug for COVID, then that's unacceptable. So there is this paradoxical double standard that off-label drugs are fine for any disease except COVID, but for COVID, you have to follow the party line. It's truly astonishing. And obviously, there's some very nefarious reasons behind this. Well, it certainly indicates some form of corruption or an ulterior agenda that's going on. I mean, this, if this is a singular condition uh, and, and in, in the you know, history of medicine, has ne we've never applied uh, rules of, these nature, of this nature, then clearly there's something else going on here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at ivermectin as an example, the FDA has considered this a dangerous dangerous horse deworming medication. But what they don't tell you is that ivermectin has been given to millions of patients, people, 3.7 billion doses have been given to vast numbers of population, billions of people in Africa, in, in Asia, in South America, and has basically changed the face of parasitic diseases. After penicillin, Ivermectin has had the greatest impact on humanity uh, in terms of medication use. It is a profoundly effective drug and profoundly safe. So, you know, they call it toxic dewormer. It's safer than Tylenol. It's safer than Tylenol. 
And it's very, apart, it's a truly astonishing drug, apart from being effective against parasitic diseases, it's very effective against viral diseases, RNA viruses. And we've known this for 10 years. So it's very good against Zika virus, against dengue virus, against influenza virus, against chikungunya virus, a whole influenza virus. It's a very effective antiviral drug. But because it's cheap, you know, the WHO has access to ivermectin at two cents for a six milligram tablet. So that's where the issue is, you know, follow the money. So, you know, ivermectin is a remarkably good drug for um, for COVID. Um, it's safe, it's cheap, and it's effective. Yes. Astonishingly, yes. you know, I, there was recently a paper published from Honduras, Honduras of all places in the world. And I'm not sure how they stumbled upon this. Obviously, some very smart people in Honduras. You know, it's a very uh, impoverished country. They thought, how can they, you know, what can they do best for their population? So starting, you know, early 2020, they had an early treatment protocol for COVID, which included ivermectin. Can you believe it? And a recent publication shows they dramatically reduced the risk of people dying in their country. So, you know, it seems to be safe and effective in Honduras. We know it's safe and effective in Japan. We know it's safe and effective in India. We know it's safe and effective in Bangladesh. And, you know, Bangladesh has, they've kind of wiped out COVID with a vaccination rate less than 10%. So somehow it's safe and effective in these countries Yet the same drug is a toxic dewormer in America. You yes. figure that one out. Yeah, and of course, uh, Senator Johnson posted a great graphic on the adverse uh, event, drug adverse event comparisons uh, from 1996 until uh, the end of um, September 30, 21. Uh, ivermectin had about 3,800 adverse events, uh, deaths less than 400. Uh, and you mentioned Tylenol, and in that same period, Tylenol had about 112,000 adverse events and 26,000 deaths. Uh, yet that can be purchased by anyone at a drugstore um, without any question. And of course, then we, we look at remdesivir, and since uh, the beginning of 2020, we have 6,500 adverse events and uh, about 1,600 deaths. So it's a fourfold difference um, in in just two years compared to a uh, you know nearly 25 year history with ivermectin with less than 400. So you know that that's a pretty simple math in terms of the safety and efficacy of those products. Yes, yes, um, it's pretty straightforward. But unfortunately, the American public and American physicians, and maybe physicians across the world, have been vulnerable to, you know, institutional propaganda and disinformation and lies because the data is there. And, you know, the data you quote actually is from the WHO's own website. Yes. So there's a website called VigiAccess. It's run by the WHO. It's the biggest pharmacovigilance uh, epidemiological database. And the data is there. And, in fact, according to their database, there's 16 deaths due to ivermectin and, uh, you know, hundreds of deaths due to remdesivir in a year 
And if you actually look at the vaccine, which is meant to be safe and effective, you know, according to their database, and it's probably under-reporting, there are over 3 million adverse events and over 12,000 deaths. So somehow the vaccines are safe and effective, but um, ivermectin is a toxic deworming medication. And yeah. one just has to go to the WHO and look at their own data um, to, to, to realize what a complete farce that is. Yes. Now, as we began the conversation, when we were talking about the, the fraudulent approval of remdesivir in April 20, are these studies which are showing the safety and efficacy of ivermectin, are this, the study designs and the, and the data analysis, are these robust and solid studies that have been, been presented? So you ask really interesting questions. So um, the major medical agencies in this country are captured by Big Pharma, but it's unfortunate to say that the medical journals are equally captured. So I can give you one example is that there was an outstanding study done by Eli Schwartz in Israel, an impeccable study. You know, this was a, you know, golden standard randomized controlled clinical trial looking at ivermectin in the treatment of early symptomatic COVID. And what they even did in the study is not only looking at symptoms, not only looking at PCR, but they actually cultured the virus to actually see if patients had live replicating virus. And they showed that ivermectin was very effective in shortening the duration of disease and eliminating the virus. He cannot get his paper published. The medical journals just will not publish positive studies, whereas there was a negative study published in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, which was a highly flawed study. It was designed to fail. It was an absurd study. Most of the investigators had direct ties to Big Pharma, and yet this paper, which obviously was a negative study, was accepted for publication and widely promoted by JAMA. So, you know, this um, it creates a, a difficult situation because people do not have access to the truth and the true scientific studies. They are completely biased. And it's a tragedy for me to say this, but... Any paper in the New England Journal which has to do with COVID, I just won't read it because I don't believe the data. They are controlled. And the, the, in fact, the editor of New England Journal and Lancet have publicly admitted that they are pressurized to publish papers by Big Pharma. Interesting. So, I mean, we're, we've really, be, this. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, perhaps in the, in the Bush era, uh, the world was captured by the the oil cartel for the exclusive benefit of, of themselves and their shareholders. And uh, we, I think we find ourselves presently captured by the pharma cartels, which are uh, lobbying and administering uh, the world for their benefit. Yes, yeah, so it's no different from the tobacco cartel. I mean, if you remember, the um, CEOs of every tobacco company testified in Congress that cigarette smoking didn't cause cancer and was had no adverse health effects, and they basically controlled the WHO and um, 
you know, the, the health agencies. So there, there is a long history of uh, health agencies being captured by economic interests that have really nothing to do with promoting health. Well, of course, you probably remember those ads that appeared in uh, National Geographic and elsewhere uh, that recommend uh, four out of five physicians recommended camels because it was uh, sm uh, smoked cleaner or smoother. Yes. Right. And, and you know what is absurd? You know, you, you may not have this in Canada, but in the U.S., we have direct pharmacy or direct pharmaceutical to consumer advertising for prescription medication. Um, so, um, um, the U.S. and possibly New Zealand are the only countries in the world that yes. actually allow such an outlandish practice. So, I mean, they advertise these high-end expensive medications for really very serious diseases on TV, in the media. Uh, you know, that's why they they have such control, is that most of the advertising revenue for TV, mainline, mainstream TV, and the press in the U.S. is big pharma. That's why yes. they control it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So let's switch gears here, Dr. Merrick, and, and let's uh, dive into your treatment protocols, uh, eye mask, math plus, and eye recover. Um, let's maybe highlight uh, some of the important concepts of each one there uh, so we can educate the listeners as to, as to how you've been assisting your patients. Yeah, so, you know, there are a few important points. You know, the first one is that people need to be empowered, that this is the, the federal government and the agencies have scared people into submission, and people need to be empowered. They need to take control of their life. And there are things you can do to minimize your risk of getting COVID. Probably the most important is vitamin D. And, you know, Matt, this is important, you know, especially for Canadians, because I don't know, you live somewhere near the North Pole, you don't get a lot of sunshine. So vitamin D, I mean, it's not controversial. If your vitamin D level is over 50, your chances of dying from COVID approximate zero, zero. So what that means is that particularly in winter, that people need to be taking vitamin D. And it's absolutely critical. And to actually even go a step further, we've now, what we're suggesting is that if people, you know, can go to their primary care doctor and get a vitamin D level because many people are vitamin D deficient. And if you have a low level and you take the recommended dose of 5,000 a day, it can take two years or a year to actually get to normal levels. So you actually need to dose your vitamin D based on your vitamin D level. And the current recommendation of a level of 20 to 30 is inadequate. You need to have a vitamin D level above 50. So that's really the first important thing. Secondly, people should be taking vitamin C. It's very important as an immune enhancing medication. Thirdly, people over the age of 40 should be taking slow release melatonin at night for multiple reasons. One is it's very, it protects you against COVID. And secondly, it's very important for health span. Health span is promoting health. Um, and then, you know, what the other thing people need to do is there are a number of mouthwashes or oral rinses that are very sidle, that kill the virus. 
So if you gargle twice a day when you brush your teeth with one of these preparations, and there are multiple different brands. Uh, the most important is the compound which contains citaperillium chloride. These you can get at your pharmacy or drugstore or supermarket. It kills the virus. So you gargle with it twice a day. Um, it just makes common sense. So there are things people can do. And then lastly, what people need to do is have a what-if kit at home. What if I get COVID? So what that means is when you get COVID, you need to be treated day one, day two. You don't wait six, seven, eight days. That That's ludicrous. So you need to have a what-if kit at home. So when you get COVID, you treat yourself. So the, these are protocols which, you know, are available on our website. There are multiple different protocols, you know, Dr. McCullough and Dr. Ration. People across the world have developed different protocols. I think it's fine, you know, the, the, the different ways of, of, of skinning a cat. I think the important part is early treatment. That's absolutely critical. So the the Two important messages are, one, there are things people can do to enhance their immune status and simple measures to prevent getting COVID. And then when you get COVID, you want to treat it early. And maybe what I also didn't emphasize is that COVID causes another disease called long hauler or long COVID, which is a very disabling disease. People suffer terribly. And we believe if you treat people early, you decrease the viral load, so you therefore decrease the risk of getting long COVID. So there are multiple reasons to treat early, and this idea of going home and staying at home and doing nothing is a dereliction of medical responsibility. It's just not acceptable. So people should, be, should not be fearful of this disease. That's exactly what they want. They want you to be scared. This is a treatable disease. It's highly treatable. It's a preventable disease. And people need to t empower themselves, take control, and do whatever they can to improve their immune system and not get COVID. Yes. Well, it's interesting that the first item that you mentioned in this uh, treatment protocol is vitamin D. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but here in Canada, um, a former member of parliament, Derek Sloan, asked our federal health minister, Patty Hadju, um, whether she was aware of the, the effect of vitamin D on the treatment of COVID and, and why the government wasn't making some treatment recommendations regarding that substance. And her reply, which is will be forever enshrined in the, in the, uh, the transcripts of parliament, was that I would, I would recommend that the, the member of parliament not spread um, misinformation and pseudoscience in the parliament. Uh, so when we have our, our, you know, the head of our health uh, agency here in Canada spewing that kind of nonsense, I mean, God help us all. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, President Zuma, who was asked about preventing HIV, and he said, well, what you do is you take a shower after sex, and that prevents you getting HIV. I mean, it's completely absurd, um, you know, that people in power should propagate such terrible misinformation is, is criminal. And, you know, vitamin D, I mean, no one's going to make money out of it. It's, such, it, it's so easy to obtain. It's so cost-effective. 
you know, particularly in elderly people, people in long-term care facilities who undoubtedly are vitamin D deficient. It's a dereliction of duty of clinicians not to prescribe these people vitamin D. Yes. Well, I would also say that, um, you know, in terms of the preventative, uh, ivermectin and HCQ can both be used as a preventative, uh, which should probably be administered to these most vulnerable people in our society, the the, the folks in the nursing homes and, and perhaps people in hospitals, uh, rather than this overreach with a, with uh, using an experimental vaccine, which really now the data is showing has no benefit and, and uh, only downside. And yet we continue to uh, march down this path uh, rather than looking at these safe and effective products. Yes. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are actually some really good studies out of um, South America, um, Brazil, Peru, Chile, actually showing that ivermectin in healthcare workers is very effective in preventing COVID. So, um, you know, what they do is they take it once a week and, you know, that was a randomized control trial. There was methodologically very sound, showing that if you take ivermectin once weekly, high-risk healthcare workers had a much lower risk of getting COVID. So there's, the data is there, and it's likely that hydroxychloroquine is also effective. Um, but they don't want you to know that, um, which, which is an outrage. Um, so there are things people can do, you know, to, to to improve their immune system and to prevent COVID. Yes. And, and particularly the, sorry, sorry, particularly the vulnerable, you know, when this all started, you know, we, things have changed somewhat with Omicron and Delta. It seems to be affecting younger people, which, which was predicted. But, you know, in the early wave, it really affected elderly people, people over the age of 60 with comorbidities. And, you know, we just did nothing for these vulnerable people. And these are the people that should have been given vitamin D and ivermectin and whatever they could to prevent them, you know, getting COVID and dying. Yes. Um, what actually has happened, and it's kind of interesting, and Gert van den Bosch predicted this, so he's this... Belgian virologist, very smart, obviously. So at the beginning of the pandemic or pandemic, he, he said that vaccination, what it will do is it will um, increase the risk of the likelihood of uh, mutations and variants which become resistant to the vaccine, and it will affect younger and younger and younger people. And he's been absolutely correct in both those predictions. Interesting, interesting. And then if we if we jump forward then to the I Recover plan, I have a couple of colleagues who are uh, suffering from the, uh, the the effects of COVID and are trying to shake shake them. Um, would you share some of those uh, recovery protocols with us, please? Yes. Yeah, so, so you know, this is a fascinating disease, um, and for some reasons, some people who get COVID continue to have spike protein within their cells and continue to have an inflammatory response. So, it, it, you know, there's data that actually the spike gets into your brain and may stay there for a long time. So, you know, people talk about spike detoxification. I don't think there is such a specific thing, but there are a number of pharmacological agents or things you can do to help your immune system get rid of the spike protein. So we, we have um, 
kind of redone our iRecover based on, you know, feedback from patients and clinical experience. Um, so, you know, it includes ivermectin and steroids, but what we've added more recently is low-dose naltrexone, um, which seems to be very effective, you know, in treating many of the symptoms of long COVID. And the mechanism of this drug is quite fascinating. So, you know, people, you know, many people who have long COVID, the doctors think this is a psychiatric problem. They're inventing this. They actually, uh, you know, are, are psychosomatic. But this is a real disease. Um, you know, Dr. Patterson has looked at the white cells of these patients and found spike protein in their in their white cells a year after COVID and year after vaccination. So this is a real issue. Um, and so, you know, we've come up with iRecover, which is really a way to treat people with post-COVID. And, you know, since post-COVID and post-vaccination have similarities, you know, it can be used for both. Okay. Okay, excellent. And and then any um, any nutraceuticals or or non pharmaceutical substances that people should utilize during that recovery process. You know, so they, if you ask a really interesting question, so firstly, you know, probiotics. It seems that COVID does a number on your microbiome. There's a specific bacteria in the gut called Bifidobacterium. And it seems that COVID destroys bifidobacterium and this kind of becomes self-perpetuating and becomes difficult to get rid of COVID. So, um, you know, there's a role perhaps of, pre, of pro and prebiotics. So something that I actually like is something called kefir. This is this microbiotic yogurt that goes back, you know, hundreds of years in middle, middle Europe. So that's something you can do. And then, um, there are a number of other nutraceuticals. So there's nutraceuticals. So there is a herb called uh, Nigella sativa, which is um, or black curcumin, which really has a Middle Eastern origin, which is a truly remarkable compound that has anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and antiviral properties, and has been studied with COVID and with some very promising results. So. You know, there are a whole host of potential um, therapeutics that, you know, people can take. And, and perhaps the, you know, what I should emphasize is there's no single magic bullet, is that it seems like you need a combination of, of different medications and nutraceuticals that act differently, but together ha have a, you know, a synergistic effect together. Yes, yes. And that's likely due to the genetically modified origin of this virus where multiple gene sequences were spliced in for maximum effect. Oh, yes. Yeah. So without question, I think the debate about where this virus came from is no longer a debate. This was a designed virus. Uh, it was designed for maximum human toxicity. Uh, the spike protein is profoundly toxic. It it does some really bad stuff, and this this was designed to be toxic to humans. Um, you know, whether it's toxic to pets, you know, is an open question. <laughs> and theoretically, that's what it was intended for. But my understanding is it's much more toxic to humans than to pets. Yes. So why you would ever want to design such a virus 
you know, clearly there were some really bad ill intentions. Yes, which is an interesting segue into these mRNA vaccines where we are uh, injecting the genetic sequence for the human body to begin to produce a spike protein, uh, which, you know, given your last statement in terms of the damaging effect of the spike protein, uh, again, seems absurd. Um, and it, it raises the question that are, you know, are we witnessing an organized effort here to suppress these cheap and effective medications uh, so we can promote the use of this experimental mRNA injection? I mean, without question, I think, you know, I was naive and many of my colleagues were naive when we started this. I think that was what the overriding intention is of whoever's leading this is to prevent early treatment so that people will be indoctrinated, scared, and forced into being vaccinated. And to be honest, we really don't know what's in these vaccines. You know, apart from mRNA, you know, there's likely other stuff in these files. I mean, there was a Pfizer whistleblower who recently, you know, splits splits some of the um, information that they don't know. You know, these people working in the factory had no idea what was going in because there was like vial A, vial B, vial C. And they had to combine these files, but no one actually knew what they were putting in these files. And, you know, there was this, you know, conspiracy theory concerning graphene oxide. Well, it seems maybe there actually is graphene oxide in these vaccines because apparently it enhances the, micro, the nanoparticle binding to the cell. So although Pfizer hasn't said it's not in there, it likely is in there. And we don't know what else is in these vaccines apart from the mRNA, which is, you know, providing the sequence for the human body to make this toxic protein. So none of this sounds very kosher to me, actually. No. And uh, in an interview I recently conducted with Dr. Jessica Rose out of Israel, where she's doing a lot of analysis on this subject, um, something that new that's come up are the incomplete uh, mRNA strands or those which were damaged or simply not uh, transcribed correctly during the manufacturing process. So apart from the complete mRNA viral uh, spike protein sequences, we also have some novel sequences in there, uh, which could be completely randomized uh, between you know, lots or even vials. And now we have, uh, you know, a novel spike-like uh, sequence which the body is producing and, and you know that could be part of some of these adverse reactions that we're seeing um, that are manifesting yeah so you know the biggest problem is and this this has been a problem since the beginning of the pandemic pandemic is lack of transparency complete lack of transparency you know I as a clinician if I want to order you know or give a patient of mine amoxicillin which is a penicillin I understand how it works. I understand its risks, its side effects, its pharmacokinetics, its pharmacodynamics. Um, when it comes to these vaccines, I know nothing. I mean, how is that possible that physicians can be ordering or prescribing, you know, a therapeutic intervention where we have no no information, none? It's it's an outrage. Um, it goes against you know, the core fabric and, you know, so-called informed consent is in, you know, is not really informed consent because 
the consent forms do not list the you know the side effects the complications the long-term effects so patients are think they're giving informed consent they they're not consenting to what they're getting yes. um, and uh, we have no idea what these vaccines do you know and what is particularly troubling is the long-term effects and what Pfizer did and they did this by design is in a placebo controlled study at six months people in the placebo arm were given the vaccine so therefore both arms were vaccinated so it becomes impossible to do long-term follow-up studies and you know the effect that these vaccines have on you know women and young girls in terms of ovarian function is unknown yes 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 i mean and because of these uh, lack of um evidence and data, you know, this is an experiment on a grand scale. And anyone that denies that is simply lying to you. Yeah, so this is the biggest human medical experiment ever conducted. And what is more astonishing is that there actually may be an experiment within an experiment. Because as you said, certain lots of the Pfizer vaccine are associated with a 1000 times increased risk of adverse events and these lots don't seem to be random it seems to be in a particular numerical sequence so the possibility is that they're actually conducting a experiment within an experiment with lots that are altered in some way that maybe there's more spike protein or different spike proteins so you know this is this is this is unprecedented this experiment that's been conducted yes and and given the available and published vares data in your opinion when should the rollout of this vaccine uh, been curtailed yeah so you know that's a good question apparently you know if you have five deaths due to a medication it should raise alarms at the fda once you have 30 deaths due to a sorry due to a pharmaceutical compound it should cause a halting an investigation so theoretically after the first 30 deaths that were associated with the vaccine the rollout should have been halted until they had further investigated this which is what happens with any medical product once you start seeing deaths and adverse events you know you kind of put a moratorium on its use until you can investigate further. But according to the CDC, I actually heard the CDC spokesperson saying that, according to them, there have been only three deaths due to the vaccines. Well, that's that sounds a little preposterous given the VAERS data. Yes. So, you know, there's, there, there are multiple explanations they give is that you know, that this is an association and not causality. People, you know, may be inappropriately reporting deaths or over-reporting deaths, or they're even claiming that people who had placebo were, were, were filing, um, you know, uh, cases of deaths. But clearly, I, I think this is an underestimate. You know, the current data would suggest that that, you know, one in 40 deaths are actually reported so it's probably a vast underestimate yes. um, and you know the other shocking thing is that 
You know, as a healthcare provider, we know that when a patient has an unexpected death, that you need to do an autopsy to figure out what, what has happened. It is almost impossible for autopsies to be done in this country in people post-vaccination. It's just not done. That I want to know, they don't want to know what's happened. That's interesting. And I, I asked uh, another guest this question, I'll ask you the same. If an individual, uh, unless you're at the, the end point towards, towards your life, if, if a you know, generally healthy person is on a consistent health trajectory, and that suddenly becomes altered in any way, whether that's uh, you know, mild or severe, um, one would have to look at all contributing factors to that change in trajectory. And if the vaccination is uh, part of that change in trajectory and, and perhaps is the only uh, causation of that trajectory change, one has to look at that as a causal factor of that change. Yes. I mean, there's, as you know, this unexplained death of, you know, particularly men between the ages of 20 and 60 in this country. The um, life insurance companies are aware of this because they have to pay out life insurance policies. So this affects their bottom line. And they, they are absolutely aware of this massive increase in so-called unexplained deaths. And yes. so there obviously must be an explanation because, you know, there's always an explanation for these unexplained things. Yes, well, and, and I believe the CEO of Indiana Life, uh, life insurance company, made the statement that a 10% increase would represent a, a 1 in 200 year event, and that this 40% increase in deaths from the, I think it's 18 to 64 year olds, uh, is, is utterly unprecedented in the history of their operation, uh, and is major, a uh, major cause for alarm. Yeah, and you know what, it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right, and it seems to have got little traction in mainstream media and amongst, you know, amongst people. This should be, uh, people should really be concerned. There is something very sinister afoot, and, you know, you can't just turn a blind eye. There is something really bad that is happening, and by pretending it doesn't exist is not going to make it go away. Yes. So do you happen to uh, uh, give us a prediction as to what the ultimate human toll may be for these corrupt decisions um, that have resulted in double and triple jabbed uh, individuals amongst our population? So, you know, it goes beyond just the vaccine. It goes to COVID, unnecessary COVID deaths. So the official toll for COVID is 5 million. But other estimates think this is a gross underestimate, and it's closer to 20 million from COVID. And then you add together the deaths due to the vaccine, which we just don't even know because nobody wants to count them. The human toll of this pandemic is just of such gigantic proportions. And, you know, whether this is the opening um, the opening performance and we have, you know, we have um, events that are going to follow this, who knows? You know, if this was planned, what is, what's the next plan? So this is really scary stuff. And how this ends, you know, who knows? Yeah. yeah that, but the, that is... human, the, 
the human toll from this just cannot be underestimated. And then you actually have to add the collateral damage, you know, what it's done to children. You know, we, you know, we had a normal upbringing. You know, kids who have gone through this have, have been masked, have been locked down, have been quarantined, their whole intellectual, physical, cognitive, social development has been impaired. Um, so I think they have been, you know, irreparably damaged um, from from all of this. These mandates, which we now know are a complete failure, and we're still persisting in them. Um, so, you know, the toll on the children, then there's the economic toll and the number of people that have lost their jobs and their careers. I think the, the human toll from this is unprecedented. Yes, yeah, I, I, I would agree. And the other um, point of significance, I believe, when we're looking at the data and, and uh, trying to analyze that, we shouldn't necessarily be looking at vaxxed versus unvaxxed. I think the real conversation should be more about treated versus untreated. Would you agree? Yes. So, you know what? Um, that, that It seems like you become a second-class citizen if you're unvaccinated and people discriminate against you. But you know what? As we know from Omicron, Omicron will affect you if you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated. So it should be treated versus non-treated. And in fact, what, what's, what's truly disturbing is it seems that the efficacy of the vaccines has now become negative, is that the more shots you get, the greater your risk of getting COVID. So that is truly astonishing. So I think that, you know, discriminating against people who've been unvaccinated is really unacceptable. And as you said, we need to talk about treatment and prophylaxis and prevention um, and not discriminating against those people who made their own choice, you know, by design. And this idea that the hospitals are filled up with unvaccinated is just a myth. It's part of the propaganda story they want to tell you, because certainly what that's not the case. And what one really needs to do is look at the all-cause mortality, which is what we do with any medical intervention. And there's actually good data from the UK showing all-cause mortality, which is, you know, you just count the number of dead people. The all-cause mortality is significantly higher in vaccinated as opposed to unvaccinated people. So I think this preoccupation with obsession with discriminating against people who have decided they don't want to be vaccinated is just, you know, it's, it's like racial targeting. Yes. And then, of course, we have the other side of that, which is the COVID recovered, uh, whom have superior natural immunity to future reinfection. Uh, and, and certainly in Canada and uh, United States, uh, COVID recovered isn't really part of the conversation. Uh, I believe it is in some European nations, uh, but uh, over here in North America, we haven't arrived at that point yet. Uh, your thoughts on this? Yeah, so that was by design because they didn't want to diminish the pool of people who would get vaccinated. So if they admitted that natural immunity was better than vaccine, 
it would limit the number of people who got the vaccine. It would make the vaccine rollout more complicated. But we've known for decades that natural immunity is better with measles, with mumps, with any disease. And it's only just common sense that that should be, that a natural infection gives you much better immunity. So there's no reason that COVID would be any different. And it's just part of the misinformation and propaganda that is perpetuated. And for multiple reasons, that natural immunity is far superior to, to that of a vaccine. Yes, yes. And then here in Canada, our dysfunctional, uh, ruthless, absurd leadership appears to be sales agents of big pharma, and they continue on their insistence on implementing a nationwide vaccine passport to enable citizens' once innate freedoms uh, to, to continue. Uh, do you agree with any form of vaccine or freedom passport? I mean, it's, a, it's an absurdity. Um, you know, it's probably as absurd as the airlines, you know, having to check your PCR, wearing masks, having passports. I mean, it's a violation of, of a people's basic human rights, of freedom of speech and freedom of movement. And this is an attempt to control population control. This is an attempt at population control. It's an absurdity. I mean, where... Where does this go next? Yes. Well, I mean, there's been, I guess, in Austria, they've now uh, implemented a mandatory vaccine program for adults, uh, although they do offer an exemption for those who can prove COVID uh, recovery naturally. Uh, but there are now, you know, as you wander the streets, the police can come up to you and ask you for your papers and uh, fine you, I think, 650 euros if you are non-compliant, uh, and those numbers yeah. continue to go up. I mean, so that, you know, we're, we're entering a very, very uh, worrisome and, and troubling uh, chapter in human history here. Yeah, so this does remind me of Nazi Germany, and when I do say such things, people look at me like, you know, I'm exaggerating or, you know, making an inappropriate comparison, but you know what, that's what it sounds like to me. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the, the comparisons and the similarities are, are to, to someone who is aware and, and awake as to what's going on here are certainly present. So is there another underlying motive to this whole madness? And, and uh, you know, does the specter of the World Economics Forum's Agenda 2030 hang ominous, ominously above this entire situation? So, you know, you ask a question that I don't like to think about. And, you know, people call this a pandemic, that this is planned. You know, it is a horrific thought. And, you know, to contemplate such a thing, you know, it, it, it you know, brings up, you think about the worst of humanity that people could actually have planned such an event. This, this is just too unconscionable to even think about. But you know what? I think you have to think about it. You know, I don't know if this was pre-planned, but you know what, just the same way as people, you know, dismiss the notion that the, the COVID was, you know, designed in a laboratory and Fauci et al., you know, wrote an editorial in a very leading medical journal calling this a conspiracy theory, which we now know is the truth. You know, I think we have to keep an open mind um, 
So, you know, I think, you know, you know, science is based and life is asking questions. We often don't know the answer. We may have differing answers, but I think we need to ask these very difficult questions. And, you know, unfortunately, this is a particular question which is very unpleasant to contemplate. But there may be some sinister underlying intentions that were planned, that this was planned in a way to vaccinate the population of the world with a vaccine, which we don't know what it does. Yes, yes. It's a terrible thought, actually. You know, people have, you know, considered, well, maybe the microchips in these vaccines. And apparently, actually, there have been patents on microchips for vaccines. So this is not a completely outrageous concept. No, no unfortunately so I, not. I don't. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, you know, I don't know. It's an it's an awful concept to contemplate. And then the question is, if this was planned, you know, what's next? Mm. Yes, yes. Well, and that's, uh, you know, people should probably be, you know, given given the history of the last two years here, I think people need to be vigilant and, uh, you know, explore your uh, prevention protocols and, and be, be careful and, and, like I say, be vigilant as to what may come. Yeah, I think, you know, I think people need to, start thinking and contemplating and asking questions because you know that's what humans do that's what distinguishes us from hopefully lower species is the ability to ask questions to speak to each other to communicate and you know that's that's so important and unfortunately we we're facing censorship of unprecedented proportions so people just on thinking about these these very important issues. Yes, yes. And then what of the situation here today that we're witnessing worldwide? Is this a spiritual battle of good over evil, light versus dark, as Reiner Fulmish and, and others have postulated? <laughs> yes, I, I, there's certainly a lot of badness going around and a lot of evil. Um, I think there are also some very good people who are trying to stand up. So, um, you know, maybe this is good against evil. And, we'll, you know, I think good will always triumph out and the truth will always emerge. Um, but I think the human suffering has been absolutely astronomical. And it breaks my heart, these these young people dying in hospital from COVID. Yes, it's just it's you know it's just heartbreaking. Well, and I would extend that as well to the to the children who are masked and and are forced to socially distance and have uh, you know and any any child under the age of five right now must be just dwelling in in a in a terrible state, certainly a very yeah. unnatural state. Yeah, so you know one needs to look at the data and the truth because that's what we're talking about. So for a healthy child, a healthy child to die of COVID is so phenomenally uncommon. It's less than 1% of 1%. So this absolute obsession with, you know, all these measures taken in children to prevent COVID, 
the reality is is that a child is 10,000 more times likely to die from a bicycle accident than COVID. So if they're so interested in preserving the life of our children, we should be banning bicycles rather than wearing masks. That's how absurd this is. Yeah, well, or or, uh, ban uh, um, uh, soft drinks that are high in sugar because obesity is the number one comorbidity of of COVID. I mean, that would be, uh, rather than implementing masks, that would have been a far more uh, gracious move. Absolutely, yes. So I, I think that the priorities are completely misplaced. And obviously, you know, what it does is it prevents kids from getting out, from exercising, having a good diet. So it perpetuates what exactly what you're talking about is the obesity problem in young and young people is getting worse because of COVID, or should I say, because of the COVID measures. Yes. Yes. So, Dr. Merrick, what is your message to the medical professionals of Canada that are remaining silent and complicit in this ongoing fraud? Yeah, I, I think you know what they have to do some soul searching. And, you know, ask themselves why they went to medical school. You know, they have to contemplate the Hippocratic Oath. They have to think about their duty to their patients, their duty to humanity, and do the right thing. Just do the right thing. And that being complicit with this, I mean, it's clear there is some agenda which is very nefarious and very evil. Being complicit with it means you are a co-conspirator. You, you know, you can't just keep quiet. You have to do the right thing. And I think they need to educate themselves if they truly believe that, you know, the vaccines are safe and effective and that there's no effective treatment for COVID apart from remdesivir. They need to educate themselves because they're, they're following a big lie. And then should this chapter in human history serve as a strong reminder that one's own health is one's own responsibility and that ultimately healthy lifestyle choices and regular exercise are far more important than a doctor's prescription pad? Absolutely. I think people need to empower themselves. Absolutely. You know, there are many things people can do as we discuss to, you know, take care of their own health, um, exercise, diet, sunshine, certain supplements, and to take control of their own life. Um, Absolutely. Yes, yes. So what's on the horizon then for for you, sir? Uh, What are your upcoming areas of research and focus moving forward? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Obviously, you know, the hospital system effectively ended my clinical career but you know what, they can't silence me. And, you know, I now have a mission is to, you know, continue doing what I've been doing and to help as many people as I can. And, you know, probably I can help more people, you know, out of direct patient care because we we have a lot still to do. So, you know, my goal is to continue along this path of seeking the truth and of helping people to, you know, deal with this overwhelming COVID issue. Okay, excellent. And uh, how can listeners learn more about you and your work? Where would I direct them? 
Yeah, so, you know, we have a website that's uh, www.flccc.net, flccc.net. It's a non-profit organization. We don't sell anything. We don't sell medication. We basically, uh, you know, we started to provide education and information and science to both the public and to physicians. And, you know, that's been our goal, and that will be continue to be our goal. And it's based on science and the truth. And, um, you know, there's a lot of information available there that people can, you know, educate themselves. Um, and there are other similar sites and, you know, other groups that are, you know, trying to do the same thing, trying to, you know, you know, improve the lot of humanity. Yes, yes, very good. Well, God bless you, sir. Thank you for all that you've been doing for your fellow man. Uh, we certainly uh, need more folks uh, like you speaking up, uh, looking at the data, uh, and providing us with good science instead of garbage science. And uh, I've enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, all the best moving forward, and uh, perhaps we'll uh, uh, circle back here at some point in the future and, and uh, have a discussion as to uh, how we were victorious uh, in this uh, battle. Yeah, so thanks for having me. It was really a good conversation. And you know what? I think this is just a starting conversation. You know, we need to talk. We all need to talk. We all need to listen. We all need to think. So, you know, I thank you for this opportunity, and I'm sure we'll speak again. All right, sir. You take care and have a great day. We'll be in touch. You, you too. Hey. Thanks, eh? Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.